and welcome to another edition of It's Your Money, the Mayor Brownsword podcast. I'm Andrew Harrison. I'm thoroughly wet behind the ears when it comes to money, but that's okay because I've got Andy Mayer here to guide me and you across the financial universe. Hello, Andy. How are you? I'm good for a Thursday in February during COVID. I'm as well as I think anybody is. Well, the, the nights are drawing out. What more could you wish for? Chris Whitty says we're now past the peak of infections. Uh, are you still betting on a Roaring Twenties revival as you were in our last uh, podcast? Are you still feeling good about it? I think the UK economy, the financials and energies and other areas are really well priced compared to other US countries, European countries. I think, obviously, it depends on how quickly we can roll out the vaccine and get back to the new normal, as it's being called. Yeah, but it's going quite quickly, isn't it? That is, it is the only good news story that the vaccine is coming out quickly. Well, if you support Celtic, it's about the only good vaccine. <laughs> it's the only good story at the moment. No, I think I think it's a difficult one because I think the UK press at the moment are quite despondent about an awful lot of things out there. So sometimes trying to find anything good news, unless you're a Manchester City fan, is difficult. Yes. Let's not talk about football. Let's talk about money instead. So on today's edition, we are going to heed the wise words of the Righteous Brothers and hold on tight to what you got. Is that right? We're going to be talking about when it's a good time to realise that you've actually got what you need or you're close to what you, what you need and how you should maybe quit while you're ahead to an extent. Tell me why you're thinking that at the moment, Andy. Yeah, it's like being 1-0 up in the 87th minute. You're not going to go and chase a football game where if Tom Brady's got the ball with one minute to go in the Super Bowl and they're winning, they're suddenly not going to go and throw the ball all over the place. They're holding on to what they've got. So what you're saying is sort of a, there's, there's a stage in your investment life where uh, it's it's not time to make the gigantic big bets. It's time, time to sort of consolidate and realise what you've got. My question to you is how do you know when you're 1-0 up? Because many of us feel like we're 3-0 down for most of our lives, financially speaking. I think we'll all be 3 nil down after the next budget. But I think there's a point in life where there is, we have enough assets in our life that actually they're going to go down to our legacy, whether that's a charity, our family, our friends. And sometimes we need to protect what we've got. And the other way of looking at it is that if you wanted a pension fund for you and your partner at, say, 60 of 500,000 and one of you dies, have you ensured that's protected but then when you get to 65 and you can't spend the money, as people have seen this year, people aren't being able to spend the money. Now, I, know, I think I suspect we'll all be spending like crazy next year, but there is a point where if you're not careful, you've saved all this money and you give it back to HMRC in form of taxes. Yes. So it's time to be looking at how to safeguard that, wrap it up and ensure that it, it can be passed on. But for, you know, to, what should your savings profile look like? And at what age should you be thinking this? I don't think it's an age. I think it's when you've got to a point in your life where you realise you have enough capital to provide the income you want. And it's to look at your legacy, what you actually want to leave to other people without giving it back to the taxman. So, if, for example, you've got half a million pound in a pension pot, provide twenty to £25,000 a year, and the pot shouldn't run out. So what do you do with that pot when you die? Or... Your house, there's certain things that we should all be doing to protect ourselves from taxes, long-term care costs. Well, well let's talk about that first, because you mentioned the house first, and that's most people's main asset. What is the best way to secure it from, shall we say, excessive taxation and to make sure that it's the most efficient thing it can be for you and for, and for passing it on? If you've got a house with no mortgage on it and it's worth below £650,000, 
You're allowed to put it in what they call a trust, and everyone gets confused about trust. A trust is a sweet wrapper. So chocolate eclairs are my favorite chocolate sweets. Now, if I drop the chocolate eclair on the floor, it's the wrapper that protects it so I can eat it. All a trust is, it's a big legal document that goes round your house. You have to have a reason for a trust. But if we go back into the past history when Sarah Ferguson went on Oprah, she complained about the royal family when she was divorcing Andrew, not giving her any money. The royal family don't have any money. It's all under trust. And they've used trusts for centuries to protect their assets. So you can put a house in a trust if you've got no mortgage. And if you've got a house with a mortgage, you can do what they call a property protection trust, where you split the house into two. And it protects protects 50% for care, but it also protects it if one of you dies early and the remaining person remarries, that the new spouse does not walk away with your half of the house. So how is a house trust administered then? Who, in quotes, owns the house when you move your property into a trust like this? If you do a family protection trust, it's basically you and your partner, and a solicitor helps you administer it, but all it changes from, in my example, it wouldn't be Andy Marr's house on land registry, but the Andy Marr family trust. So... In the unlikely event that uh, that you die, the the house is kept in tr- it remains property of the trust. Yeah. And what 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 are the taxation advantages of that then? Well, what it means is, for example, if my house is worth five hundred twenty five thousand, it means if I die and my wife goes into care ten years later, they can't take it for care costs. It means that in the event of me wanting to leave it to my children. Um, one of them's in an unsuitable marriage, one of them's got drug problems, alcohol problems, or on social benefits. The money stays in the trust until it's appropriate to give it to them. And it can and does save people's homes when they go into trust because you can't write a plan just to avoid care costs. But it's a issue of it. You can say, I don't want, in the event of myself going into a care home, my wife to have to sell the house for care costs. You can say, I have an 18-year-old daughter that I don't think if I died now, she would be financially able to manage the money. And I know my 16-year-old son would spend it just on Xbox parts. And you sit there and sell TikToks. So you sit there and go, you're protecting your assets. And the side issue is that it can also avoid care costs if there's no mortgage. But you can only get, in these sorts of trusts, £650,000 in them. You mentioned pensions and drawdown, which was, for a while, this kind of bonanza when when financial times were were less onerous than they are now. How should people be approaching their pension assets now? Should they they be wary of drawing down money? I think drawdown's been one of the greatest remarkable achievements by governments to allow people to access pensions and make sure it passed down to generations. But stock market volatility means it's not right for everyone. And one of the things I think is really clever with drawdown is if you know you want an income of £10,000 a year, for example, you can put two years in cash funds, two years in low risk funds, and then the rest in moderate, and it will have enough time to recover. But the advantages of drawdown are that flexible income and the ability to leave money to your loved ones. But the downside is, whereas an annuity guaranteed you a fixed income for life, drawdown is dependent on the, ultimately the money you take out versus the returns that the, the investments make. Right. 
and it's a bigger risk for, and it's not right for everybody. I mean, the regulations are, are about to change like now, aren't they? I just read in the FT, people turning 55 this year are going to be presented with new retirement options, uh, a retirement pathway. What does that mean? The plan is to stop inexperienced DIY investors making expensive mistakes. I think it's aimed at trying to give people, as with everything the FCA do, it's to try and give people guidance. What it tends to do is absolutely throw people into a tailspin and make it even more complicated than it needs to be. The right. reality is it's they've launched a, a matrix for transfer for defined benefit schemes such as British Steel, and it's been slammed already in the industry because it makes no sense. I think the problem is with Drawdown that there has been so many scandals where people have invested their money in Cayman Island funds and pods that have gone bankrupt, it would be much simpler if the FCA said drawdown cases had to go into regulated funds that can be seen in Morning Stars or Financial Times or whatever paper that are regulated. They've allowed so much freedom that there is the odd scam. It costs people their livelihood and it increases my insurances by about 25% a year. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, it's not. I, just, I think the way that the financial services is regulated at times, we miss. The glaringly obvious. It's like London Country Financial last year were advertising ISAs at 8%. Obviously, they went bust, and I think there was £49 million worth of people's money lost. That's where the regulation needs to come in to protect people who are vulnerable from misleading adverts. Well, returning to our theme of quitting while you're ahead or knowing when you're 1-0 up, perhaps... When do you know you won nil up on your pension? I mean, what should, what, the way things are about to change, we think the triple lock is protected probably, but some kind of taxation regime is going to have to change. How do you know if you say you're in your mid-50s and you're looking at a pension-based retirement scheme, how do you know you're in good shape? There's all oh, People always ask me what they think I need. I go, it depends on, there's two levels of spending, Andrew. You COVID level of spending where you can't go out and that might cost you six, £800 a month to live. And then there's your desires. And there was a piece of research done years ago, and Morningstars have done some, as have JP Morgan. If you've got a pot of £100,000 and you take £4,000 a year, 4%, it should never run out. If you've got a pot of £100,000 and take 6%, 6000 it'll last anywhere between 22 and 28 years. The key part is once you start taking income from a pension on a drawdown, the thing to do is go to see your financial advisor, whether it's me or somebody else to make sure you're on track. We we always try to describe drawdown as an airplane journey. You leave Los Angeles to get to London. The pilot tells you it's 10 hours 40. If you get turbulence behind you, it might be 10 hours. If you get a massive amount of turbulence going against you, it could be 12 hours. You have to revisit drawdown every year to see what your inflationary needs are, what your income needs are, and what the markets have done. Let's move on to wills, which you touched on a, a, a minute ago as related to homes and trusts. You told me a good will is good, but a will trust is better. Why? What is a wills trust and why is it better? A will trust is, again, it's this sweet wrapper. So if we look at some celebrities who died, so there was a famous celebrity who was on an advert and loose women who died. On her deathbed, her will changed. And it moved some of the money away from the children to her current husband. And legally, it stood up in court. If she'd have written a will trust, 
on her death, the trust would have protected it. It gave her greater protection for her children. A trust is a legal framework that when on a death, it means moves that money into it and it cannot be altered. So whilst wills are very good, if you die and you leave your half to your spouse and they get remarried, there is nothing you can do. Whereas a will trust, it trusts the money you want and it creates a legal framework. So if I want to die and leave my pension to my partner to spend 3% a year, but on her death, it goes to my children, that's a will trust. Whereas if I leave my pension to my partner and they remarry, that can go to their new partner on their death. So it's, it makes a massive difference. It gives you much greater legal protection. And in fact, the one we've sent out all our questionnaires to people from for what they need in the new year, the biggest returning area is wills and trusts. Really? Yeah, but I think I think COVID's made a lot of people worry about their legacy. And it's also a lot of people, and I did a, a conversation with some clients recently, know them decade, great people. And we were just talking about wills and everything. And one of them pointed out that he was due an inheritance when his father dies. But instead of it being split between him and his brother, it's now being split between him and his brother and two stepchildren because the father has remarried. And that's right. what we call bloodline protection doesn't work because it's now part of that inheritance is going to the new blended family. So wills are something that we all want to do. and We try and rush them. But actually, it's an area that we should take. It takes a lot of time. It takes sometimes a lot of arguments in houses. But when they're done properly, they can save a lot of hysteria after a death. Because effectively, you get to maintain your ongoing wishes rather than have them uh, modified by circumstances that change after your death. I'm saying I want to leave my share of the house too whoever that is, and in the event of a partner remarrying, my share still goes to who I want it to. That person has a lifetime interest in it. In fact, we've got a client, great bloke. He lived with his partner for a number of years. She was disabled. On her death, the trust allows him to live in the house until his death, but then it returns to this lady's children. They weren't married, but the trust has worked Right. Perfectly. It's protected him, but made sure that the children, her children, will inherit the house. That's interesting. So if so if you're not married, presumably a trust like this could also you know, it it can it can work for un, unmarried partners. Yeah. Can it work for LGBTQ people? Can it work yeah. for the, those scenarios you see when like two sisters have lived together forever mm. and one of them dies and presumably the house is lost? Can Will's trust work for for, for, for people in those situations yeah. as well? It, this is it's great for people who are in what we call non-standard situations because often the law is written 60, 80, 100 years ago, yeah. situations that have changed. And writing a trust, bizarrely, it sounds painful. It protects your wishes, but it protects your loved ones who could be thrown out of a house without the trust. And right. You see that so often that someone's lived with someone and then the family go, no, you're out. Whereas a trust can do it. And trusts can be written. There doesn't need to be any marital or family relationship at all. Is that the case? Yeah, you've got a financial interest in a house or you've got an interest that you want to leave somebody something who's in your life. 
Yeah. I always say to people when you write a will, if there's someone who's expecting something from your will and you've fallen out with them, explain in your will why you're not leaving them so there's no chance of it being disputed. And a trust allows you to protect. So you might have a charity that you're passionate about. You might want to leave the money to the charity. It does rob us of the fantastic Agatha Christie moment where the will is opened and the uh, and the, the, the terrible son and daughter-in-law both faint dead away. But I suppose you can't keep everything, can you? Let's move on, finally, to look at income. Now, a lot of us have got 15 or 20 years of work ahead, whether we like it or not. And, <laughs> at least. Uh, exactly, yeah. The future's uncertain. Industries are all up in the air. All that is solid melts into air, as Karl Marx said. What should you be thinking about income protection and you know redundancy insurance and, and illness protection and stuff like that? I think the most underused resource in this country is income protection, protecting yourself in case you can't will because uh, can't work because how many people could live on statutory sick pay, right? And the reason I say this is because with COVID, the death toll is staggeringly sad. But the long-term impact of long COVID, when people can't go to work for six, eight months and they're on statutory sick pay, will destroy families, it will destroy homes. And I always find it interesting that people will insure their pets for 20, 40, 60, 80 pounds a month. People insure their prized possessions, their watches, their jewellery. But the cash cow that is the people working that earn £10,000 a year, £20,000, £200,000, we never insure that money coming into the family. And without that income, because of long COVID or a stroke, the retirement plans disappear. The, the ability to sort of look into the sunny future and thinking you will go to bah- Bahamas on holiday will go because you're, you're on statutory sick pay unless you work for a multinational who give you really good long-term sick benefits. If, if one wanted to, let's say somebody's on, Let's say somebody's on £40,000 a year hmm. and they are 50. What kind of premium are you looking at? To, uh, if they're a non-smoker and they want say, you, you'll never get fully insured because the insurance companies have worked out if they paid you £40,000 a year and you're off sick, you'd never go back to work. Well, some yeah. people wouldn't. But it's about covering your basic needs. So if your mortgage is 1000 and your living costs are another 500 you need to insure yourself for... Uh, £1,500 a month, and then you look at your savings. Do you need to insure yourself permanently or do you need to insure yourself for, say, a payout of one year or two years? And the premiums are matched between £40 and £80. Right. Which is still a lot of money, but people are spending that on Sky. They're spending that on their pet insurance. But They're spending that on pizza in a month. (laughs) I think it's been most people's wine bill over COVID. (laughs) Yes, <laughs> or take away beer because there's nothing else to spend the money on. And is is it possible to get protection? I mean, obviously, a lot of this is after the fact because COVID has driven a coaching horses through everything. Particularly, like small company directors who are not eligible for furlough or PAYE freelancers not eligible for furlough. Is it possible to get that kind of protection for the self-employed? Yeah, it is self-employed. Few of the lenders are excellent with the self-employed uh, because, again, they realise self-employed people on illness look to go back to work generally sooner than employed people because the benefits are non-existent. So if you're self-employed and you're ill, you're using your saving. If you're employed and your employer pays you, say, three months full pay, three months half pay, there isn't the financial need to get back to work as quick. So a lot of the insurance companies 
quite like self-employed people because they know they haven't got a safety net. The safety net is them getting back to work or their savings. Yeah. Well, it's going to be interesting because uh, there is an urgent reason to protect yourself. Job losses from COVID are now falling disproportionately on the over 50s. And it's harder to get into the it back into the jobs market when you are that age. Apparently one in four unemployed people are now over 50. So there is a, you know, there's yet another shift in focus on where employment protection is going to go, income and that kind of thing. I, I mean, I, I use the word cash cap, but it is the... The one thing we should always protect is ourselves. So in terms of if you've got a job that you think is vulnerable, protect it to cover your costs in redundancy. If you think you have to provide a £1,000 a month to your joint account of 1500 make sure you insure it. And if you are long-term ill, then you protect it because I, I sort of see the long-term implications of when people are off ill for six to nine months and they don't get paid and their savings are rattled or it affects their pension. And we all don't like looking at premiums from our bank account, but to find £60, £70 a month is easier than when you've got to find £1,200, £1,500 a month to pay into your joint account or you put it on a credit card bill. Yes, never, ever do that. Yeah, so- it's, it's a recipe for disaster. Absolutely. So in closing then, just before we uh, we wrap up for this time, what would you say at the moment is the one big thing people should take away when they're kind of doing that assessment of, am I am I ahead of the game? What should I, should I be consolidating? If you're getting closer to retirement age, you want to protect your assets to make sure you're not going to lose them. And if you're not close to retirement age, protect yourself in the event of adversity. Right. Andy, thanks as ever for filling me in and giving me loads to chew on. So we'll be back next time to talk about the budget in March. What, what are you betting on? What, what's likely to happen, do you think? I think by March, Celtic will have definitely lost the league. <laughs> and Liverpool have lost the league as well, yeah. so we'll both be miserable. I think the budget's going to see corporation tax uh, increased. I think we're going to see a review of capital gains tax. I think there will be equalisation for self-employed people and dividend tax potentially. I suspect this wealth tax, depending on how you bring it in, will possibly come in. I think state pension age might move for people under 50 and maybe even under the age of 60 by one, two, three, four months, which long-term saves him a great deal of money. Uh, Maybe people under the age of sort of 45, it might move to 70, because if he moves state pension age back, it will make a massive saving, but it will be a public outcry if he does it for anyone who's within probably five or six years and maybe even a decade. But I think that will come, and I think because it's an invisible tax, because we're not paying it now, you just don't get government money that you've paid into till later. Right. Well, we'll be back in a month's time or so to kind of pick through the bones of that and see what it all means and see what advice, Andy, you can give uh, to deal with Sunshine Sunak's latest developments. <laughs> But everyone, thank you for listening. Uh, If you found this podcast useful, please do subscribe on your favourite podcast app, on your phone or on your tablet. Then every new edition of It's Your Money will pop up automatically and you won't have to remember and Andy won't have to nudge you and remind you. Andy, good to talk to you, as ever. We'll see you next time. Hopefully the budget, Liverpool have recovered, Celtic are recovered and taxes are going down. It's an economic miracle. (laughs) See you next time. 